0: Morning. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, you are almighty. You are just. You are wrathful. You are gracious. You are forgiving. You are adopting. You are loving. You are kind. And for all these things, we praise you. We praise you. We thank you that you have granted us to be a people who call your son Jesus Christ, our brother, but also our Redeemer, our God, and our King. We thank you, Father, that the gospel is true, and because it's true, and because you have moved us to turn from our sin and to trust in Him, that we are among the redeemed. Father, you know, as you have known from eternity past, that that we would be here this morning and that we would be looking at a particular passage of Scripture, and it is one that, that can be misunderstood. Pray, Father, that as we have just sung, that you would give us understanding, that you would help us to make sense of what we read, that the words on the page we would take them at face value, that we would heed them, and so continue to persevere in faith in Christ. Pray that this passage would have its way with us, that your Holy Spirit who has inspired it would work in our hearts, and that we would be encouraged and warned this morning appropriately because you are a loving Father. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. This morning we're considering Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. So as you, as you find your place there, let's stand together, and I will read those words. Keep in mind as I do so that these, these are words inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. This is not just a book that we're reading. This is God's Word. Hebrews 6.4, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work in the love that you showed for His sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You may be seated. you have children above the age of one year, raise your hands, That's a lot of us. The reason I say one year is one year is, is, is about where the cognitive ability makes a child able to understand some kind of direction. And I just wondered, th- those of you who have children one and up, Those of you who don't, but you can remember how you were raised. So you can think about this in terms of how your parents dealt with you. Do loving parents warn their children? Seems like the obvious answer is yes. I mean, we're we're doing it constantly, just constantly. And and it doesn't stop, really. I, I, I think that those of us who have adult children... We may be a a bit more tentative in giving those warnings, but we we still want to. They they may be uh, surreptitious may not be the best word, but they're they're veiled somewhat. But we're still warning. Loving parents warn their kids, don't do this or that because this negative thing will result. That's not the only way that a parent shapes a child's behavior. Parents also, among other things, they also encourage their children. You're doing really well. Keep it up. These two means are just two of the means that good parents use to direct their children along the path that they should go. The author of Hebrews has told us in chapter 12 That God is a good father, that he loves us. And we find here in chapter 6 that, like any good father, he uses means to get us where he wants us to go. And among those means are warnings and encouragements. And our challenge this morning is. To do a couple of things. First of all, not to argue with the text. Secondly, to heed what the text says. It's going to be something of a tall order for some of us. But I've prayed for you all week that that you, that we would be able to do that very thing. The author gives essentially three directions in this passage. And the first of those is, is consider the cost of falling away. Consider the cost of falling away. Look with me again at verses 4-6. through For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. In the previous section that we considered last time, the author took what we might think of as a timeout from his teaching on the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ because he wanted to say to his recipients, there is a lot to say about this Melchizedekian priesthood, but it's going to be difficult to explain because you've become Lazy of ears is, the, is, is a very literal way of translating the phrase back up in, in 5.11. You've become lazy of ears. In the beginning verses of chapter 6, he said, So let's press on to maturity. Let's not stay in that place of laziness of ears, the place of spiritual danger, but let's press on to maturity. And now here in verses 4 and following, he's telling us why that's so crucial. There's a reason that a person should not be content to go backward in their maturity, but should press forward. And that reason is because in the case of those who fall away from Christ, those who apostatize, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. And the flow of thought in this passage indicates that this is a warning to the recipients saying, hey, let's press on to maturity for it's impossible to restore the apostate to repentance. That's where we're going, essentially, at least with part of the passage. And and I'd like to begin by just walking through these, these few verses that I've just reread. And let's consider the language and confirm that he's talking with believers. And he is intending to warn believers such that they will cling to Christ in faith. So verses 4 through 6, it's just one really long sentence. And we could summarize it by saying, there is a kind of person who cannot be renewed to repentance. There's a kind of person who can't be renewed to repentance. What kind of person is that? He says, first of all, they are those who have once been enlightened. To be enlightened is to be given understanding in transcendent matters. Now, an important question for us this morning with each of these phrases is, how is this phrase, how is this word enlightened? How is it used by the author of Hebrews when he uses the word enlightened? Who is he talking to? What what does he mean? In Hebrews, the author refers to the recipients as those who have been enlightened. So you might write down Hebrews 10.32, which reads this way. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with Suffering, and he goes on there in the following verses to describe their godly response to those sufferings. So, I would suggest to you that in the context of Hebrews, enlightened indicates not just seeing the truth but being changed by it. It appears that for the author of Hebrews, this is is a characteristic of those who are saved. He describes this group also as those who have tasted the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift, what that is may not be clear to us, but look at the word taste. That's an important word. Some might say that taste could indicate that these people just have something of a glimpse of the things of God, such that they're they're not actually fully initiated into the things of God. It's, It's like when my wife and I go out on a date and we get different desserts. And she looks at my dessert and says, I just want to taste. She's, she's assuring me, I, I don't want to eat the whole thing. You can eat it. I just want to know what it tastes like. Is it possible that that's what he means by this? They, they, they just tasted it. They just tasted the good gift of God. Well, let's ask the question again. How does the author of Hebrews use the word Taste. He says back in chapter 2 and into chapter 3 that Jesus tasted death for everyone. It's the same Greek word. He tasted death for everyone. So, did Jesus partially take death for us? No. Jesus tasted death for us in the sense that there is nothing left over for us. Taste for the author of Hebrews does not appear to be a partial experience. So here, the author is indicating people who have fully embraced the heavenly gift. These are also people, he says, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. More literally, they have become sharers in the Holy Spirit. They've become sharers in the Holy Spirit. So how does the author use that word sharers or share elsewhere in Hebrews? There's a couple of references you might write down. Hebrews 3.1. In Hebrews 3.1, he calls the recipients of the letter. The letter. He, he writes to them, Holy brothers, you who have become sharers in a heavenly calling. He uses the word again in Hebrews 3.14. For we have, become, we have come to share or we have become sharers in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm, and to, firm to the end. The way way that he is using that word elsewhere in Hebrews seems to indicate full participation. Full participation in the Holy Spirit. And that's significant because the New Testament sign that somebody is a believer is their reception of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there really is no clearer way for the author to indicate that he is speaking to believers. They have become sharers. In the Holy Spirit, in verse five, he uses the word "taste" again. Same word. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. So let's keep in mind how he uses the word "taste." He's not saying just 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 to get an idea of what it's like. By by taste, he means consumed. Like like Jesus tasted death for us. They've they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Suggests they've ingested the goodness of God's Word. More to the point, it seems. what he's getting at, they've ingested, they've embraced, they've taken in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've tasted the powers of the age to come as well. So we're keeping in mind again what he means by the word taste. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. They've experienced fully these already not yet wonders of the Christian life. There are end times blessings that believers enjoy in some form, even now, and, and those blessings include fellowship with God, empowerment by the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Believers have tasted these things in the sense that He's using the word taste here. Again, n- not like you might nibble a piece of cheesecake, but, but they've tasted them in the same way that Jesus tasted death for us. They have tasted the powers of the age to come. In verse 6, he also indicates that these are people who have repented. Because what is he saying is impossible? He's, he's saying it is impossible for these people, it is, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Both of those words, again and restore or renew. Some, some translations say renew. Both of those words mean that these are people who have repented. And we can't say, well, it was a false repentance because then the author would be saying, it's impossible to renew them again to a false repentance. That obviously is not what he's saying. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. These same people, he writes, that that they have fallen away. If all of these things are true of them, all of which seem to be clear indications that these are people who have believed and then have fallen away. What does it mean to fall away? It does not refer, it does not refer to like an occasional lapse into sin, an occasional lapse into poor, poor judgment or doubt. Rather, this is a word that's connected to the word apostatize or apostasy. The, the, this, this falling away is to make a definitive volitional, conscious break with Christ. It is to commit apostasy. I don't want Jesus anymore. I'm walking away. And I would just suggest to you that the most natural way to read these verses is that he's talking to people who are believers about believers who turn away from Christ. More to the point, he's saying to to the recipients, if you do this," this, this is the point, this is, not some, this is not some theoretical thing. He's, he's saying to the, to the recipients, if you do this, you can't be restored to repentance. That, that's the flow of thought. That's the only reason to say all these things. Now, some of us may be really struggling thinking, but, but, but this is impossible. It is impossible for a believer to fall away. I agree with you, I agree, but I, I'm not going to explain it yet, okay? It is impossible, and the passage means exactly what I've just said it means. But, but how that works, we'll get to later. For right now, let's let the warning linger, all right? Let's not explain it away. Let, let, let's not quench the spirit by undoing what he's trying to do with this section, The author is concerned about believers showing signs of falling away. That's that's clear repeatedly. And it's also clear repeatedly that he's talking to believers. He gives no indication anywhere in the letter that he is self-consciously addressing a mixed community. That That is a body of people, some of whom are believers and some of whom are unbelievers. And he's actually, with all these warnings, he's warning the unbelievers. There's no indication of that. Rather, he, he, he says things to them indicating that they're believers and over and over over he's warning them don't fall away. In the context of all of this, he writes, it's impossible again to restore them to repentance. Why can't they be restored to repentance? Well, he, say, he, he says why in verses 7 and following. I'm sorry, for verse 6. They, they're crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm. They're holding Him up to contempt. Those phrases, crucifying once again and holding Him up to contempt, those phrases describe what these people do when they reject Jesus, not what they're doing when they would attempt to come back. They don't attempt to come back. To reject Jesus is to hold Him up to contempt. It is to say to the world... And, and this makes sense, given everything that, that he's, he's written in verses 4 and following. To reject Jesus is to say to the world, I know everything about this guy, Jesus. I've experienced the best he has to offer, and I've found him wanting. And so by my departing from him, I'm announcing that he is bogus. That is, that's... That's why rejecting Him is holding Him up to contempt. The ESV study Bible notes are worth quoting here. I'll quote, "...such a falling away treats God's own Son with such serious rejection that it is as if the person wanted again to put Christ on a cross. After such a departure, there can be no return." Turn with me over to chapter 10, verse 26. We'll look at a cross-reference helps us to make sense of what we've just read. Hebrews 10:26 and following is a is a parallel passage to this warning in chapter 6. Hebrews 10:26 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment He's saying essentially the same thing in chapter 10 that he he says in chapter 6. The person who has rejected Christ has profaned the blood of the covenant. And the reason a person can't be restored to repentance after that is because God won't have it. Now, now some some would say, and I've heard this many times about chapter 6, some would say that it's impossible to renew these people to repentance because they won't want it. Now, no, I agree that that's true, but that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. There are a number of problems with, with, with saying that that's what he's saying here in chapter 6, not the least of which is that the text just doesn't say that. It is impossible to renew them to repentance because of how they've treated Jesus. That's what the text says. Additionally, the language in six restore or renew them again to repentance. That's passive language. That's not a person trying to come, but that is that a person can't be brought. They can't be brought to repentance again. And I'd suggest that they, they can't be brought to repentance again because God the Spirit refuses. Because if, if we use chapter 10 as a cross reference, he, he refuses because of how God the Son has been trampled underfoot. And the Spirit of grace is then outraged by that. Suggest that that's why it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Verses 7 and 8 seem to support this. Look at verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, the referent of this metaphor would seem to be pretty obvious in, in the context God has showered his people with blessings like like a sky that rains water down on parched ground He's showered believers with blessings so they should bear fruit then in the form of godliness Now we we know from elsewhere in the scriptures that 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 production of fruit is progressive We don't instantly only bear good fruit, right? That should be encouraging to us. God is not expecting only perfect fruit from day one, from conversion on, but the believers should show some evidence of life change. Those who do inherit the fulfillment of the promises, that is, they enter God's rest if those same people who have enjoyed God's many blessings in Christ, if they bring forth only apostasy, as the text indicates, they can plan to be cursed and punished. So if we have in mind the whole context that we've, uh, we've studied up to this point, we, sh- we should find that here in chapter 6, the author is really only continuing what he said back in chapters 3 and 4 as he was warning the believers there to be careful lest they not enter God's rest. He's he's simply making the same point here. And I would suggest to you that the point is not that a lack of fruit shows that you were never saved. That is true. A lack of fruit shows that you were never saved. But that's not what this author is saying right here. The point here is that if one bears worthless fruit, that is, if they fall away from Christ, their end will be burning. And by virtue of the ministry laid upon me by Almighty God, it is incumbent upon me to press into this warning with you. If you turn away from Christ, you will burn. It will be impossible to restore you again to repentance. Don't fall away. Hold fast your confession to Christ. Draw near to the throne of grace and fight for faith. Press hard into maturity by understanding and applying God's Word. Consider the cost falling away. The second direction that he gives, beginning in verse 9, is be encouraged by past and present fruitfulness. Be encouraged by past and present fruitfulness. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. I want to point out a couple of what may typically be thought of as incidental words, but we tend to make a lot of them in this case, and I want to address that. The word is "though" in verse nine, and "yet" in verse nine. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, we feel sure of better things—things things that belong to salvation. I would suggest to you that this is in th- this translation. If, if we understand it rightly, it's fine but we want to make sure that we don't make more of it than we should. The the author is communicating, we've given you this really strong warning even as we're convinced that you're saved. So let's not take from these two words, though and yet, in our English translations, that he's downplaying the warning that he just gave them or that he's saying this warning actually doesn't doesn't belong to you. It's it's actually for you-know-who. No. No. He's not saying that, okay? He's not downplaying the warning. The warning is for you, even as we're convinced that you're saved. We we, we don't want you to infer from the warning that we think you're not saved. We think that you are. And we think that you should be encouraged because God sees your work and He sees the love that you've shown Him by serving the saints. Now, in these verses, the author is He's talking about their obedience. All obedience to biblical commands could be described in the terms used here. Your work and the love that you've shown for His name in serving the saints. And, and He describes this, this work and this love as taking place in both the past and the present. In other words, He's saying, this is characteristic of your lives. We We, we know from the letter that 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 work and that love, it it ebbs and flows because He's seen some things in their lives that concern Him. At the same time, the author, and more importantly, the Lord, is aware of their, their godly fruit. Now, I personally, I find this tremendously encouraging. Even as I'm embracing that warning and heeding that warning, I find this really encouraging because it so matches what we experience and see in one another. Who among us is so right on spiritually that neither we nor a pastor nor a spouse nor the Lord could identify trouble spots? Areas of concern, areas of immaturity. None of us have arrived. All of us are still growing toward Christ-likeness, which means that there are places in every one of us that do not look like Jesus. In every one of us, there are areas of concern, and yet, blessedly, that doesn't preclude that simultaneously there exists in us godly fruit that evidences salvation. And consider here how he's described this obedience. It's clearly not works done to earn salvation. Works done to earn salvation are works done out of love for self, but he characterizes this as works done out of love for the Lord. Works done from faith in Christ are works done out of love for the name of God and serving the saints. Obedience, born of love, that's a sign of faith. He, he, He calls them things that belong to salvation. These are works that come from salvation. And a crucial thing to understand in, in all that we're looking at here is that these works, this fruit, this, this love and service to the saints, these things don't save. Christ saves. We trust in Christ alone. He obeyed where we could not. He suffered the penalty of our, for our sins. He was raised from the dead, the victor over sin and death, by faith in Him. We're joined to Him such that His victory is ours. And the Father, when He looks at us, He sees Jesus' obedience, Jesus' death, Jesus' burial and resurrection as belonging to us. And His Spirit progressively conforms us into the image of Christ. The author sees in the recipients not fruit that saves, but fruit that evidences salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's why he wants them to be encouraged and not disheartened by the strong warning that he's just given them. He's not saying don't forg- he's not saying to forget the warning, he's saying, don't, don't, don't be so discouraged that you're in despair because I've warned you this way. Look, I see fruit in you, fruit that indicates to me that you're a believer." And some of us may be completely confused now, and we, we, we may wonder. What the author sees, fruit in them, fruit of faith, fruit indicating that that they're believers. Why is he warning them? Well, that leads to the third direction. Consider the value of warnings and exhortations. Consider the value of warnings and exhortations. Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So, why, why warn us if you're if you're persuaded that we're saved? The. The easy way to summarize his answer is because these warnings are part of what moves you to persevere to the end. That's why. It doesn't indicate that I don't think that you're saved. I think that you are saved, and I want you to cross the finish line of faith. I want you to persevere. He says there in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. So Pay attention to that word sluggish. And now look back up at 5.11. and 5.11... He wrote, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. See the word dull? That is the same word as the word for sluggish. It's, that's the word that I've been, I've been translating lazy, lazy of ears. Verse 12 essentially then is saying, i give you that warning so that you will not be lazy of ears. That, that, that's a reason to give this warning. They've, they've become lazy of ears. That doesn't mean that, that there's, there's nothing at all positive going on in their sanctification. He just mentioned their current, their past and current, love-motivated service to the saints. He, he's just indicated their, their things belonging to salvation. But in terms of their appetite for the Word and their application of it, He indicated in chapter 5, there in verse 11, they've slowed down rather than growing. And as I mentioned last week, that leads to going backward, not going forward. leads to going backward, not being stagnant. You don't stay in one place, you go backward. And that's a sign of spiritual danger. So he sees this sign of spiritual danger, and so he warns them so that they'll move forward. It's that sluggishness, dullness, laziness of ears that's the issue. What does he want for them instead of that? He says, we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Another way of of saying that would be, we want you to be zealous to maintain certainty about the truth of the gospel. Let me say that again. We want you to maintain certainty about the truth of the gospel. We want you to be zealous about that. And to that end, he, 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 the author is magnifying the superiority of Christ and he's magnifying the eternal danger of rejecting Christ. By these things, he's trying to drive them to cling to Jesus so that they won't look like what they look like now, which is, looks like they're drifting, but rather they will look like what others have done in the past. Others who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And there he means... By inherit the promises, the fulfillment of the promises, or entering God's rest. I want you to do what they've done. Those people who have entered God's rest. What do they do? They trust and obey. That's that's essentially what he's saying by, by faith and patience, inherit the promises. In the midst of difficulty, trust Christ and show that you trust Christ by doing the right thing while you wait for His return. Trust and be patient. Trust and obey. He gives examples of of this kind of people in chapter eleven. So, if we wonder who's he talking about, he's talking about that hall of faith in chapter eleven. These Old Testament saints who trusted God and demonstrated that faith. They showed that faith through obedience. We have this we have this almost sing song pattern that happens in chapter eleven. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham, and so on and so on. By faith, they what? By faith, they did things. By faith, they obeyed. The simplest expression of it is Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Because he believed. He did what God told him to do. Here in Hebrews 6, the author anticipates what he's going to write in chapter 11. So he's saying, I want you to be so sure of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that it moves you to cling to Him in such a way that you continue to live by faith, not shrinking back from following Him. I'm trying to motivate you to cross the finish line like all of these Old Testament saints. And so I'm Warning you, on the one hand, I'm warning you, if you fall away after receiving all the blessings and revelation that you have, there will be no way to renew you to repentance. And I'm encouraging you. There's great evidence of salvation in your life. And if I see it, I know God sees it. Warning and encouragement side by side in no way contradicting each other as means. Both of them are means to lead believers where God wants them to go. And, and we need to understand that this, this is not something that's unique to Hebrews 6 in the New Testament. Hebrews 6 tends to stand out to people, but we see this, this kind of thing over and over. Warnings and encouragements side by side in the same passage or in the same near context. Let me give you just a, a few examples of this in the New Testament. You can look at these later and, and, and see for yourself. 2 Corinthians 13.5. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. James 1, the whole chapter, you'll find, you'll find encouragements and warnings. In the book of 1 John, you've got five chapters there where you, you see these things encouragements, Warnings, encouragements, warnings, encouragements, warnings. Now, let's, let, let's consider the big question that's, that's probably still nagging at some of us. Can an elect person, someone chosen by God for salvation from eternity past, can that person fall away? No. God has predestined that the elect will enter glory. Pastor Rick read for us from John 6.37 and following this morning, I'll read a couple of snippets from that passage again. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39 of that passage, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. A similar passage in John is chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. where Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. All all of these things together, you, you put them together and th- there, there is an unbreakable line from the, the secret counsel of the Father in eternity past to those whom He's chosen, crossing the finish line of faith and entering glory. Whomever the Father chooses, the Son redeems and they will be raised on the last day. An important question for us and, and one that I think is absolutely crucial for understanding how these fit together is this question, why can't they fall away? Why can't they fall away? Why won't they fall away? It is because warnings like this one in Hebrews 6 always work in the hearts of the elect. They always work in the hearts of the elect. God uses warnings to work in the hearts of His people to move them to keep believing. Some of us, for some reason, we think that perseverance is we, we've all got a perseverance button on our hearts. And God causes us to persevere without means. That is, He just pushes that button. And so we just, we just persevere with, with, with nothing from outside of us influencing us to persevere. That's not true. He uses means, and, and there's, there's a lot of them. Prayer, the, 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 the gifts of the Spirit, and, and all kinds of things, and warnings and encouragements to move us to continue to believe in Christ. And these means, all of these means, they always work in the life of the believer. Now, is the author then being dishonest by warning, saying, if a believer falls away, they can't be renewed to repentance? Is it dishonest for him to say that? No, because that's precisely what would happen if somebody fell away. The fact that the warning always works doesn't mean that what it says isn't true. If you, if you disavow Christ before the last day, I mean, do you, do you believe that, that you will enter glory? I certainly hope not. Do you, do you believe that somebody can enter glory on the last day saying, Jesus is a fake. Hopefully none of us believe that. This is what would happen if a believer renounced Christ, walked away. The fact that the warning always works doesn't mean that what it says isn't true. If a believer renounced Christ, they wouldn't enter glory. If you apostatize, you you won't be, you can't be renewed to repentance. So says the plain words on the page here. So don't apostatize. Now, when the elect hear that kind of warning, It seizes their hearts in such a way that they persevere in faith. For some reason, we we tend to be okay with the concept of God using means to accomplish His ends with other things, but with perseverance, it it bothers us for some reason. It shouldn't. Think about how this relates to conversion or how it's like conversion. We tend not to have a problem at all with God using means as it pertains to conversion. Does God predestine certain people to be converted? Without question. Uh, The the biblical evidence is is so overwhelming that if you're going to argue that He doesn't, you might as well argue that Jesus is not the Christ. Absolutely, God chooses and predestines people, certain people, to be converted. Does He do that without means? No. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Are there people whom God has chosen to be saved who are saved without hearing the gospel unto faith in Christ? There is no reason to think so biblically. A person must hear the gospel and trust in Christ in order to be converted. Gospel hearing is the means that God uses to bring about the end that He has predestined, which is conversion. And that is why five-point Calvinists are the people who started the modern missionary movement. Because, because we believe that God doesn't just predestine the ends, He predestines the means. What do you call a person who believes in election, but who says, no, we, we don't have to share the gospel. God predestined them to be saved. He'll save His elect. What do we call those kinds of people? We call them hyper-Calvinists. And I'm on the fence as to whether or not they're heretics. It's at least grievous error. We believe that God predestines the ends and the means and that's why we are diligent to share the gospel that's why we, we we five point calvinists we put the gospel in front of our kids all the time all the time all the time because that's the means that god uses to bring people to salvation he doesn't use something else he he, he doesn't push a he doesn't push a conversion button outside of the preaching of the gospel, the author of Hebrews is demonstrating here that God uses means to bring about perseverance just as surely as He uses means to bring about conversion. And He's showing that by saying to the, to the recipients, by saying to us, hey, be warned, if you fall away, there, there will be no renewing you to repentance. And, and you and I should, should, should read that and we, and we should say, that's true. Because that's what my Bible says. That's what every Bible around me says. If I fall away, I can't be renewed to repentance. At the very same time, the author encourages them, I see godly fruit in you indicative of salvation. I, I, I see that fruit even as I'm giving you this warning. And I'm doing it all so that you'll press on and do what others have done, which is to continue to hold fast to Christ and so inherit the fulfillment of the promises. And the elect hear all of that. They hear all of that and they persevere Every time. Now you and I should then, when we come to warnings like this, we ought not try to get behind these these warnings in such a way as to undo them. And what, what I mean by that is we ought not think to ourselves, well, this is a warning, and understand that it's just here to get me to persevere, and I'm going to persevere anyway, so I don't really need to pay a whole lot of attention to it. I'll, intergl- I'll under glory because God's ordained it. That's hyper-Calvinism applied to perseverance, and it is not much different at all from saying, I don't need to share the gospel because God will save His elect. It's, it's, it's terrible error. God will convert His elect the way that He's chosen to, and that's through the preaching of the gospel. And He'll cause them to persevere the way that He's chosen, and that's through their heeding His warnings, among other means. So so when we come to warning passages in the New Testament, we ought to take them at face value. And we ought to do what they're designed to cause us to do, which is turn from any laziness, turn from any spiritual lethargy, and run fast after Jesus. Jesus pursuing holiness by faith and living godly lives. Heed the warnings. Heed them. That's what they're there for. He's writing to us, believers. And we should be encouraged by the exhortations. Let all God's means, let all of them, unto our perseverance, have their intended way with us so that we might cross the finish line of faith and enter glory. Consider the great love of our good Father. He is a good Father. And that He has put all of these means around us. He's, he's pressing on us with these good means to ensure that His good ends for us will be accomplished. Let's pray. Father, You are a good God. You are a good Father. And we have considered things somewhat difficult to grasp this morning. And we pray for Your continued assistance with these things, that as as we leave this place, that Your Holy Spirit would continue to minister to us, helping us to understand, helping us to embrace the truth, helping us to incorporate it into our lives. and and helping us to see how we we don't have truths in tension here, but we have have complementary truths working together. We praise You and thank You, Father, that You have predestined us to enter glory. And we praise and thank You that You have put into our lives, at work in our lives, certain means that will bring those ends about. We pray that You would have Your way in us this morning, that we would heed these warnings. We would see that if if we were to turn away from Christ, we could not be renewed to repentance. Help us to take that seriously, Father. And so, not turn away from Christ. Continue to believe in Him. Love Him more than anything. Press into the Word and apply it to our lives. Please let this glorious book of Hebrews, written so long ago, Please let it have its intended effect in us that we would persevere to the end. We ask these things in Jesus' name.